What would you say is one of the hardest things about living in a fallen world, or as we like to call it here at CCC, living in this era between the gardens? There's a lot of daily frustrations, aren't there? There's a lot of daily frustrations of living in this era between the gardens, this world that's been affected by sin and its curse. Uh, little things like cars breaking down or getting the flu. I mean, there's just these reminders that we're living in a fallen world. But I think there's one dynamic of living in a fallen world that's especially noteworthy, that's especially difficult. And that's experiencing the pain of being sinned against. One of the realities of living in a fallen world is not only are we sinners, but we live among a world of sinners. And there are people in our lives, maybe some very close to us, maybe some not so close, but people who have sinned against us. And sometimes that pain of being sinned against is so deep, so deep pain. What, what are we supposed to do with that? As we continue our journey through this era between the gardens, what are we supposed to do with that sometimes so deep pain of being sinned against? We're not the first generation to ask that question. Look at Matthew 18 with me, if you will, please. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, and continuing down through the rest of that chapter, down to verse 35. We are in a series here this spring, a short series on parables of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus sometimes told stories that had a particular lesson to learn, and we're going to look at one of those today about the issue of forgiveness. In this story, we're going to find it preceded by the Apostle Peter asking Jesus a rather direct question, and we're going to see Jesus giving what I would consider a rather shocking response. I don't think Peter and his fellow disciples were expecting Jesus to say what he said. And maybe because they were reeling, <laughs> Jesus told a parable. He told a story. Are you open to Matthew 18? Let me read verse 21. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Okay, so apparently Peter is wrestling with this issue. Jesus has been talking about how to handle sin in the church, how to handle forgiveness. And Peter asks a personal question. He says to Jesus, if someone sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Are there limits? What are the limits? What are the limits to forgiveness? And he says, should I forgive someone who sins against me seven times? Legitimate question. You know, if we were to look at this in its historic context, it, it gives a little more light. Back in the New Testament era, there was a repeated uh, tradition in the Jewish community. There was a repeated tradition from the rabbis that the limit to forgiveness was three times. That people should be expected to forgive up to three times if someone sins against them. Uh, but after three times, you're not obligated to forgive. So the limit to forgiveness was three times. And so I'm guessing, trying to stand in Peter's sandals, that when he says to Jesus, should I forgive up to seven times, he's putting himself in a pretty good light here. You know, it's kind of like, what do you think, Jesus? I'm pretty forgiven, right? I mean, you know, forgive someone seven times? 
And, and he's spinning himself here. He's presenting himself, I think, in pretty gracious terms, saying to Jesus, I'm going above and beyond as your follower. I'm going above and beyond the normal expectation in forgiving someone who sins against me seven times. Can you believe it? Seven times. And Jesus' response, I'm sure, put Peter back on his heels. Why don't you look in your Bible, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of you have older translations that have 70 times seven. The language there is a little bit difficult to put into English, but let's take 77. Now, now Jesus is not saying a number to be used woodenly. He's not saying, well, forgive someone 77 times, and on the 78th time, let them have it. You know, or if he used the 490 figure, he's not saying the 491st time, get even. That's not his point at all. Jesus is saying, don't treat forgiveness as some sort of commodity that you can count. You know, that you keep track, you know. Okay, that's one, that's two, you know. He's saying, don't treat it that way. Forgiveness isn't a commodity that you access and count as you access it. He's saying it's it's a way of life. My, for my followers, forgiveness is a way of life. It's limitless. It's without boundaries. There are no boundaries to forgiveness. Paul would later write in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiveness is without limits. Keep on forgiving. Now, <clears throat> this morning, I'm guessing... I'm guessing that some of you, if you saw what the passage was for today, some of you had a knot in your stomach about coming today. Because maybe you've read this passage in Matthew 18 and you realize its implications on your life and you find it difficult. You find it painful to think about Jesus' words here. To forgive without limits, do you know how I've been hurt? Pastor Larry, do you have any idea how I've been hurt? And thinking about forgiving as a way of life, forgiving without limits, is a concept that you hear and you say, that's impossible. How in the world, how in the world do you expect me to forgive after how he treated me, after what she did to me? How do you expect me to forgive and to forgive and to forgive? How do you expect me to forgive without limits? That's impossible. And I think Jesus realized that many people would hear what he just said and respond that way. And so he tells this powerful story. He tells this powerful story, this parable that we read in three scenes. Let's look at the first scene. It's about an amazingly gracious king. Look in your Bibles, Matthew 18, starting at verse 23. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the number that Jesus uses in his parable, in his story here, the number is astronomical. You say, how could a slave owe anyone that much money? Well, it's probably using the term servant the way we use it in our culture. We talk about government officials, for instance, being civil servants. It's probably something like that. So the the point isn't what position did this man hold, but maybe in the uh, story that Jesus told, he'd be like the treasurer of the kingdom. He was a civil servant. And when the king had his accountants read the books, this guy owed 10,000 talents. Now, that's a figure we're not used to in our culture. We're used to dollars. 
Now, the word talent can mean an ability, but back then it was also used as a measurement of money. It was used as a measurement of weight to precious metals. A talent of silver would have weighed about 75 pounds. We're talking ten thousands of those. So 10,000 times 75 pounds, it comes out to something like 375 tons. Now, if you were to leave today and you would see in the parking lot semi after semi after semi after semi, and you'd say, what's on those semis? You'd say, they're loaded with silver. <laughs> well, it would be like a caravan of semis loaded with silver. That's how much money this guy owed. The point Jesus is making is, it's an astronomical number. It's a debt that there's no way he could pay back. This guy couldn't pay that debt back if he had a thousand lifetimes. If he earned all the money he could for a thousand lifetimes, he probably wouldn't be able to pay back this amount. And that's the point. The point is, this guy, there is no way. We have young grandchildren, and they come up with new words sometimes that I enjoy. Um, it would be like a young child saying, a gazillion, gazillion. You know, and that, that's about how much this guy owed. He, he owed a gazillion, gazillion. You know, it's like, it's, it's beyond description. It's beyond imagination. So he calls this guy in, and what happens next? Look at verses 25 and 26. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. Let me pause. So the guy can't do it. He obviously cannot pay back a debt like this. Now, the, the, so the king says, okay, we're going to sell your house. We're going to sell everything in your house. We're going to sell you. We're going to sell your wife. We're going to sell your children into slavery. And it's not going to meet the debt, but it might put a little tiny dent in it. But we're going to sell you, your family, everything you own. You owe me, the king was saying. So what happens next? Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Do you hear this? Yeah, the guy's desperate. Yeah, he's desperate. He doesn't want to lose everything. He doesn't want to go into slavery. He doesn't want his wife to go into slavery. He doesn't want his king, kids to go into slavery. So he falls on his knees in desperation and begs, give me time. Give me time and I'll pay you back. Now, now think about the request just for a minute. I mean, you have to appreciate the guy's desperation, but, but isn't that kind of a ridiculous thing to say? Give me time? How many lifetimes do you want? You, you're not going to have enough lifetimes to pay this back. And it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous to think what this guy was saying to the king. And yet, my friends, if you'll allow me to make an aside comment here, don't we do that with God sometimes? We say, God, God, I promise, I promise I'll turn over a new leaf. God, I, I, I promise I'll never do that thing again. God, I'll promise I'll be a better person. Just have mercy on me. I, I promise you, I'll, I'll turn over a new leaf. And, and it's ludicrous. I mean, even if you could, even if you would, 
Well, what do you do with the debt you've already earned? What do you do with the debt you already owe? No matter how many good things you do, no matter how sincere you are making promises to God, you cannot erase the debt you've already accumulated. It's a, it's a ludicrous thing this guy's asking for. He is desperate. You want to hear what happened, though? Look at verse 27. Out of pity, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I mean, what did the guy ask for? He asked for time. What did the king give him? He gave him forgiveness. And, and you read this and you say, that king is, is astonishingly gracious. That king is amazingly merciful that he forgave the debt that this guy owed him. He forgave it all voluntarily out of compassion. The king had pity on the man and forgave a debt that is astronomical. Forgave him. You're free to go. So the guy leaves. And what does he do? And we move to scene two. What's going to happen next? Verse 28. But when the same servant, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, pay what you owe. So here's this guy that just received mercy beyond mercy. He just received pity beyond pity. He received the forgiveness of a debt that is just beyond our wildest imaginations. And he goes out and he finds a guy who owes him a comparatively small debt. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's a comparatively small debt. It's a doable debt. I mean, the guy, if you gave him some time, he should be able to pay this debt. For you mathematicians, I'm not. Um, but for you mathematicians, the ratio is 1 to 600,000. So the first servant owed the king 600,000 more dollars, if we use our terms, than the guy that owed him money. 600,000 times more. So he goes out to this guy who owes peanuts compared to the gazillions that he owes. And he grabs him by the neck, probably to drag him into court, and says, pay up! You owe me, buddy. Now, now what words would you use to describe that? Harsh, mean, vengeful, hypocritical. So now what does servant number two do? Look at verse 29. Look at this. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost verbatim. It's almost verbatim what he had said to the king. This guy that owed him money just said what he said to the king. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And so this guy that had just been shown an astonishingly incalculable <coughs> amount of mercy went and extracted from the guy that owed him money 
potential payment by throwing him in prison, assuming the guy would find some relatives, friends, someone that could pay his debt. He showed him no mercy. Now, now let me just point out something that struck me a couple days ago when I was meditating on this passage. We just read scene two. Scene two is the guy extracting from the guy this commitment that he has to pay his debt. Now, if you didn't have scene one, if scene one weren't there, probably most of us wouldn't be bothered that much. You know, someone owes you a hundred bucks, they owe you a hundred bucks, they should pay you a hundred bucks. And if you just had scene two, you would say, you know, maybe the guy needs to tone it down a little bit, but hey, you know what? The guy did owe him money. He has a right to extract from this guy the payment that he was due. But the thing is, we have seen one. And that's the point of the story. We have seen one. And in scene one, the king showed this servant astonishing mercy. Astonishing forgiveness. And with that is a, a brilliant backdrop to this ugly scene. Scene two, where the first servant chokes the second servant and throws him in jail because of the hundred bucks he owes him. Now there's a twist to this story. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They saw the hypocrisy. And they went and reported to their master, the king, all that had taken place. There were witnesses. There were witnesses. And so these people went and told the king what just happened. Now we come to scene three. Verse 32. Then his master summoned it and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? The king calls the unmerciful servant back into him. And I'm, I'm sorry that our English translations, I don't think, say this strongly enough. The king is not saying, hey, buddy, wouldn't it have been a good idea if you'd have been nice to this guy? He's not saying, wouldn't it have been a good idea? He uses a term of obligation. He says, if I could paraphrase here, he says, were you not obligated? Was it not your obligation as a recipient of astronomical mercy? Was it not your obligation then to take that same kind of mercy you were shown and show it to the guy who owed you? You were forgiven an amount that's incalculable. Were you not under obligation then to forgive the debt, much smaller debt, of this man who owed you money? Were you not under obligation? This was your responsibility as a recipient of mercy to show mercy. And so what's going to happen now? Verse 34, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. Now, we get uncomfortable with that verse. John Piper wrote something about this verse that caught my attention. Let me just read it to you. This is not my words. These are the words of Dr. John Piper. He said, the point of this parable is that God has no obligation to save a person who claims to be his disciple if that professing disciple has not received the gift of forgiveness for what it really is. Infinitely precious, amazing, undeserved, heart-humbling, mercy-awakening. 
if we claim to be forgiven by Jesus, listen, if we claim to be forgiven by Jesus, but there's no sweetness of forgiveness in our hearts for other people, God's forgiveness is not there. And I think Dr. Piper hit the nail on the head right there. If we say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but we live with bitterness and vengeance, always easily angered and offended and ready to get even, then Dr. Piper is saying, despite your profession, if there's no sweetness in your heart, the sweetness that comes as we are impacted by forgiveness, astonishing forgiveness, then our profession of faith is spurious. It's, it's not true. It's not real. Because what comes out of us reveals what's in us. What come, Jesus said that, didn't he? Out of the heart the mouth speaks. So whatever comes out of us reveals what's inside of us. So if what comes out of you is bitterness and vengeance, it's revealing what's actually in your heart. But if there's a sweet forgiveness that comes out of you, it's revealing that there's a sweet forgiveness inside of you. It is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit, the converting work of the Spirit in applying forgiveness to your life. Now Jesus is going to apply this story, and you have to almost hold on to your seats. As Jesus said, and I'm reading the words of Jesus here, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. <coughs> In the story that Jesus just told, the king represents God. God is the king. You and I are like that first servant. In the story, the first servant represents you and me. That if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have been the recipients of incalculable mercy. I think sometimes we, we're guilty of uh, what I heard someone else call proportion distortion. <laughs> we, we look at our own sin and we, 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 we play it down. You know, we think, oh, you know, I, I'm not perfect, but hey, come on, you know, we all have our bad days. And we tend to spin ourselves in better light than we should. You know, just, just for a minute, I mean, we've got lots of younger adults and kids in our church. We have some of us that aren't <coughs> quite as young anymore. <laughs> but let's just say, let's pick someone middle-aged. Let's pick a 40-year-old, a 40-year-old, just a median point in our church. Well, someone who's 40 years old would have lived 350,400 hours. So over a third of a million hours. Now, do you think it's reasonable to assume that most people sin against God twice an hour? A lustful thought? An angry word? A lack of love? covetous desire? Do I need to go on? I don't think it's hard at all to assume that we are being generous with ourselves and assuming we only sin twice an hour. But just for sake of discussion, if that were the case, then a middle-aged person would have already offended the God who made him or her over 700,000 times already. And some of us have passed the million mark. hard to put a good spin on that, isn't it? That you and I have offended the God who made us hundreds of thousands of times, 
hundreds of thousands of times we've offended the holy God of the universe. Now, to make matters worse, it's not just the quantity, but it's who we're sinning against. There's an old hymn that you hear now and then, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And there's a verse in that. I wrote it down. Let me see if I can find it. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. And the hymn writer caught the essence of that. He's saying, if you think sin's not such a big deal, then go to the cross. Go to the cross and ask yourself, who is it that's hanging on that cross? It's none other than the Son of God himself, the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus Christ had to die for sinner's sin. It took God coming in the flesh to pay the price of your debt and the price of my debt. It is redemption comes through the, the work of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not just the quantity of times we've sinned against God. It's the God we've sinned against. It requires the death of his own son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I are represented by that first servant. And yet, we deal with the fact that we live in this era between the gardens and people sin against us sometimes. They, they, they hurt us. They sin against us. How are we supposed to deal with that? Well, let me just change the question a little bit. Wrestle with me here, friends. Why? Why should you forgive that person that sinned against you? <coughs> you know what we often assume? I mean, I've heard people in counseling sessions say things like, I'll never forgive him. It gives me shivers when I hear that. I think, don't sign your own way into hell. Don't say that. <coughs> Why should you forgive a person who has sinned against you, even those who have sinned against you severely? We sometimes think, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. She doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And you're exactly right. He doesn't. She doesn't. Any more than you deserve the forgiveness you receive from the high king of heaven. The reason we forgive is not because the person who sinned against us deserves our forgiveness. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers in 432 and says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just, listen, just as in Christ God forgave you. He wrote similarly to the Colossians, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I picture this as I wrestle with this too, as I, as I try to picture this, when I wrestle against an unforgiving spirit is to go vertical, to go vertical and to realize that, that God has forgiven me my incalculable sins against him, my crimes against him. He's forgiven me because of Jesus Christ. He has poured out upon me incalculable, undeserved mercy. 
And as I go vertical and realize I've been forgiven more sins than I can remember, more sins than I want to remember, I can take, I can take that mercy, I can take that forgiveness, and I can bend it. I can bend it toward people who have sinned against me. And I can forgive as I've been forgiven. I can take that mercy I've been shown and bend it toward people who owe me, who are indebted to me because of their sins against me. You go vertical and you forgive as you've been forgiven. One reason we forgive, my friends, is because we've been forgiven. But you know, Jesus gave us another reason in this passage on why we should forgive. The point of the parable is we forgive because we've been forgiven. But in verse 35, Jesus gives us another reason, doesn't he? And it's a little more awkward to talk about. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know a second reason why we must forgive, my friends? Because we want to be forgiven. Because we want to be forgiven on that day. God is not obligated to show us mercy. If we decide to hold on to bitterness and a vengeful spirit, we are losing heaven and gaining hell. You know, this isn't the first time Jesus said this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. Check it out. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And we read that and we say, that's fine, that's good. But that's not the end. He says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And we also, secondly, we forgive because we want to be forgiven. You know why I think we wrestle with this? Why do we wrestle with this? Why do we say, that's fine, I'll do that? I think we wrestle with this. I'm going to cut to the chase. I think it's because we don't really trust God. I think it's because we don't trust God. I mean, we all live with a certain image-bearingness that says justice should happen. And that's true. And we think, that person who sinned against me is responsible for that sin and owes it for that sin. You know what? That's a true statement. Whose job is it to judge sinners? Whose job? It's God's. Whose job is it to get justice, to get vengeance on sinners? It's God's. He said that. Paul quotes God in in Romans chapter 12, and he says, don't get vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I picture it this way. I picture a judge's bench. And behind the judge's bench is one seat. There's one seat at the judge's bench, and guess what? It is more than adequately occupied. It is occupied by none other than the judge himself, our Lord. And whenever we try to get vengeance on people who have sinned against us, you know what it's like doing? It's like climbing over that bench and trying to shove God off of the judge's seat and says, I'll take it from here. I don't think you're being hard enough on that person who, who sinned against me. I don't think you're dealing with him in a timely fashion. I'll take it from here. I'll get vengeance. And it's tyranny. It is. It's, it's tyranny. Saying, God, I don't trust you. I 
get my own vengeance. I'm going to make him pay. I'm going to make her pay. There's no denying the pain, my friends. Some of you live with deep pain from being sinned against, pain that maybe I've not experienced the way you've experienced. I acknowledge the pain can be deep and undeserved. But people have sinned against you. There's no denying the pain. You know what? Jesus was slandered. Jesus was sinned against. He, he was blasphemed. You think Jesus didn't feel the pain at all? He felt the pain. It was undeserved sin against him. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, what Jesus did with that pain. It says, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus could have said, I don't know if he did, but he could have said to his heavenly father multiple times, Father, you see how these people are treating me. You hear what they're calling me. Lord, you see how they're sinning against me. Father, I entrust myself to you. And Peter says in the same way we should live. And so if you picture God on the judge's seat and you're coming with that pain of being sinned against, understandable, deep pain of being sinned against, we go into the throne room of our, our heavenly father, the king, and we walk up to his throne. And we say, Father, you see how I've been hurt. You see how I've been sinned against. And I trust you. And we lay, we lay our burden in his lap. And we walk away with our hands free hands empty. We're not holding on to the bitterness anymore. We're not holding on to the vengeance anymore. We've left all that into the able hands, the able lap of our kingly, royal, heavenly Father who's promised us. He's promised us. I'll take care of it, my son. I'll take care of it, my daughter. And now, having entrusted ourselves to him, he just you and I are free. We're free. We're free to forgive. We can forgive that person who sinned against us. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Remember, forgiven sinners forgive sinners. And the corollary is also true. Forgiving sinners are forgiven sinners. Forgiving sinners are forgiven sinners. We have good reasons to forgive people who have sinned against us. Some of you are here right now and you've got memories coming back that you wish weren't coming back. Can I ask you today to review in your heart how much you've been forgiven and take that mercy, that grace you've been shown and bend it, bend it toward the person who sinned against you. You've been shown immeasurable mercy, immeasurable undeserved mercy, immeasurable undeserved forgiveness, and you bend it toward the person who sinned against you, and you show undeserved immeasurable forgiveness. Now, I know some of you are asking questions like, well, do I need to trust the person who hurt against me? If Maybe you're the 
object of someone's sinful abuse. We don't have to be naive about it and, and trust them in ways they shouldn't be trusted. But you can forgive. You don't have to hold bitterness in your heart against that person. I don't know what's going on with you right now, but we're going to take communion in a few minutes. And it could be that some of you need to talk to the Lord right now. So we're going to give some silence before the deacons come to pass the bread. And I'd encourage you, if the Lord's convicting you of a bitter heart, a, a vengeful spirit, that you go to the Lord right now and you lay that in his lap. You ask his forgiveness and he'll grant it. And it's not always possible. It's not even always appropriate. But if it is both possible and appropriate for you to speak to that person that you've demonstrated vengeance toward, bitterness toward, and get his or her forgiveness, maybe you need to do that today too. If it's possible and advisable to ask that person's forgiveness for your bitterness.